Hello, this is Marcus Smith. In this episode of Constant Wonder, we're going to feature a favorite interview from our archive. It's one that I found to be based on a really poignant story of what the human spirit is capable of doing against tremendous odds. Enjoy the conversation. I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. It just so happens I'm sitting in a studio. This word studio conjures up images of painters or sculptors, artists at the very least. We'll also broadcast studios. But if you go back in time, the word was Italian for a room in which to study. That's a fairly obvious link. But it goes even further back to the Latin word studium, which connotes eagerness or zeal, a kind of diligence or striving. Our next story is about a group of women striving diligently to do their very best to stay alive. And it all happened in a studio. It was a studio for a certain kind of artistic specialization, namely the design and manufacture of clothing. And this place had a name. It was called the Upper Tailoring Studio at the notorious Nazi concentration camp Auschwitz. Lucy Adlington writes both nonfiction and fiction as a clothes historian and a novelist. It's a pleasure to visit with her today about her book, The Dressmakers of Auschwitz, The True Story of the Women Who Sewed to Survive. Lucy Adlington, welcome to Constant Wonder. Marcus, thank you for such an interesting introduction. It's lovely to be able to speak with you today. And I'm speaking from the north of England, as it happens. So we're connected beautifully around the globe. And you connected with a story on the continent. How do you stumble across the story of dressmakers surviving? This is not the kind of thing that just shows up on, you know, in in any headlines anywhere. No, and it's certainly a subject that very little has been known about it in the past. And I'm a clothes historian, so I'm always on the lookout for the ways that clothes essentially show us so much about human culture, human technology, trade, transport, exploration, gender. So there's so much to explore there. But I've long specialised in the 1940s and specifically World War II in Europe, And so I came across mention of a fashion salon in Auschwitz and, like most people, was utterly taken aback. I'd always associated Auschwitz with, of course, um, Nazi genocide. And yes, I was aware of hard labor. But at the time, I had no idea just how much greed and profit making drove the SS at camps such as Auschwitz. So I was determined to find out more, which was not easy. This would necessitate finding some kind of evidence of a first-hand nature, some first-hand reports. Luckily, there is an Auschwitz survivor who came to the U.S. after the war and concentrated her academic work on collecting testimonies from a group of about 300 women in particular who were working in the SS admin block at Auschwitz. And among these women, there were women who were doing secretarial work primarily as slave laborers, but there were also women of the upper tailoring studio. And so thanks to the work of this academic, Dr. Laura Shelley, I was able to have, well, there were a few names. That's all I could find out at first. And it was only as news spread of my project that the families of survivors got in touch with me and said, well, let me tell you about my mother my aunt, my grandmother, who sewed in this this extraordinary place in Auschwitz. 
And most remarkably, I discovered that one of the seamstresses from this uh, studio was still alive, alive and thriving and living in San Francisco. So I booked my ticket and went to interview her. And what interesting revelations she had, as well as the other archive material I was able to turn up about the studio. You have been face to face with somebody who experienced this. And it, yes, it, it was quite a remarkable experience for me as a historian. You know, I'm so used to thinking about things that this is theory, this is objective. But when you're welcomed into the home of someone who's lived what you are studying, what you are writing about, it is very humbling. And one of the first things she said to me was, you listen. So, oh boy, I sat down and I listened. <laughs> quite a remarkable woman, really so bright and understandably bitter about many of her experiences, but she spoke of the immense solidarity of this group of mainly Jewish prisoners who were able to create a haven in the tailoring studio and who even set it as a hub for resistance in the camp. There's more to this than just people were there wearing clothes. The clothes somehow have important functions. They do in life. Um, very much so. Clothes are incredibly powerful for the way we show status or perhaps gender or profession, but they're also really intimate to us. And, you know, we like to be clothed on the whole. You know, we, we feel socially embarrassed if we're not. And so the Nazis very deliberately had theatricals of clothing so that at the big Nuremberg rallies, you would have row on row of men in uniforms looking immensely powerful, a big uh, group collective identity. But when prisoners, when deportees arrived at concentration camps, they were deliberately stripped. And it was partly to humiliate them, of course, to terrorize them. But it was also a way of making them feel subhuman, which is how the Nazis viewed Jewish people and other people who were deported into the camps to be degraded and worked or even murdered. And so the idea that of stripping you up, your clothes off and then giving you either rags or leftover uniforms or this, the infamous striped uniforms of concentration camps. It's deliberately there to make you feel less of a person. And it's amazing how many prisoners resisted this and they wanted to keep a sense of identity. You know, they tried to mend their ragged uniforms or tried to wash them or tried to get something slightly better, slightly more dignified. And then lording over it, it all were the senior SS officers and their wives. And these wives had lives of great privilege in many ways, and they wanted to show it through their clothes. And how then extraordinary that they couldn't associate themselves with the human beings making clothes for them, the slave laborers. They didn't see them as the same because they were dressed differently. You talk about, even before this studio is uh, arranged for a few of these uh, imprisoned women uh, to, to do their work, um, you, you talk about the, the needle that got, that got shared or, or, or needles or, or the, the scarcity of needles and how this was of such importance to the people in the camps. Yes. I mean, having a needle could be punished with a beating or even with death. The Nazis deliberately did not want prisoners to have uh, dignity, to have that sense of self-possession. And so I read of one woman who actually made a needle out of a piece of dried straw. She was so determined to try and mend her clothes. And in her case, she was trying to make underwear, which many prisoners were not issued with. And you might think, well, come on, you're in a death camp. Why are you worrying about underwear? 
But of course, you know, it's for your dignity, for your modesty, for your comfort, these little things are hugely important. So how is it that uh, the studio is established? Who, who is the, the motivator behind it all that, that sets the wheels in motion? I think for that, I mean, you can look at the wider picture of essentially the Third Reich using plunder to finance wars. They're deliberately invading and expanding the territory of Greater Germany so they can appropriate businesses, they can appropriate valuables. And so right from, an, uh, from very early on in Hitler's regime, the SS and their allies, they're, they're used to taking what they want. And so when Rudolf Huss comes to Auschwitz in 1940, he's the first commandant of the, the camp, he comes with his wife, Hedwig. And Hedwig's already been, she's brought up her family in other camps, such as Dachau and Sachsenhausen. And when she comes to Auschwitz, to her, it's perfectly natural that she should have prisoners as slave labor. And she has a house that's been stolen from a Polish person. It's in occupied Poland. She has a garden that's worked by slave laborers. Why should she pay people to make her clothes when she can pluck out women from the first official transports of Jewish people to the camp? This is in 1942. And the first Jewish women to arrive in Auschwitz are from Slovakia. And so here is where we see the lives of young Slovakian women colliding with this SS woman, the commandant's wife, Hedvig Huss, in 1942. So I want to introduce the name Marta Fuchs, who I, I understand came from Bratislava in Slovakia, had made her way to Prague, and uh, now in the camps. Somehow does, does she... Uh, signal uh, up the line, I know how to sew, or does, does somebody come down? Is there a, a request that comes? Uh, we, we're looking for a, a seamstress? This is how it works. It's just through connections and conversations. And Marta Fuchs, a brilliant dressmaker, she is picked to be almost like a sort of au pair, you know, a nanny for the, the Huss children. So she leaves the main camp and goes to the, the beautiful Huss villa. And Hedvig Huss, the commandant's wife, says, oh, I need some pieces of fur making into a coat. And Marta knows that if she can get a position like that, it's better than hard labor, which most of her friends are suffering at this time. And so she says, I can do it. And Hedwig is so pleased with her work, she sets Marta in the attic of the villa sewing. And Marta very cleverly says, oh, there's too much work for one person. I need help. And one by one, she manages to pluck friends and family and people who need a haven out of the hell of Auschwitz-Birkenau and into a much a relatively safe job. And the other SS wives are so jealous of Hedwig's fashions that Hedwig eventually opens up the upper tailoring studio in the SS admin block so that all of the women can benefit from the slave labor. And this is where Marta really comes into her own. And she saves so many lives by saying, I need another dressmaker. I need a lingerie specialist, a corsetier. We need a coat maker. And she sends word out into the camp looking for people who can come and work for her. And these people who come to work are not, uh, well, they're, they're very, very young. They're not very old. Yes, Marta was one of the oldest at 25. 
and you think what they're enduring, but they most of them are around 20, 21 years old. And the youngest one that Martin managed to save, she would not have survived without the studio work. She was only 14 years old and she couldn't even sew. But Marta said, nope, she's very useful, picking up pins and jotting down notes during fittings and so on. So really, it was it was quite remarkable how many young women were saved. Now, I want to talk about the garment industry in Germany at the time and and kind of move away from the camp for just a moment because you explain how uh, the garment industry was predominated by, by Jewish business people. Uh, something like 80% of these the stores. And, and so in, in a way, as the Nazis come to power and they're uh, uh, disparaging of the, the Jewish garment industry, there's kind of a weird tension now back at the camp because you're using Jewish women expressly to, to do the work. It exposes the full-on hypocrisy. The Nazi regime essentially worked throughout the 1930s to eliminate Jewish talent and Jewish involvement in the textile trade and the garment trade. And they did this in every country they occupied. And the reasons were anti-Semitism, of course. They wanted to make the whole country, the whole world, Jew-free, as they called it. But it was also greed. They saw that Jewish talent and Jewish capital was hugely successful and popular, and they wanted it. So they stole Jewish businesses and they used heavily anti-Semitic propaganda to say, oh, you don't want to wear Jewish fashions as if anyone could tell. And yet the hypocrisy is they then corralled Jewish people into ghettos. There was a huge labor shortage for the Reich. And they said, right, these Jewish people now have to make clothes. They have to make uniforms for the Wehrmacht and the SS. They have to make civilian clothes for department stores back home. So the hypocrisy runs through the whole of the Nazi regime. And Hedwig's fashion salon in Auschwitz was just the ultimate embodiment of it. It's an honor to have Lucy Adlington with us to talk about her book, The Dressmakers of Auschwitz, The True Story of the Women Who Sewed to Survive. Adlington is an author of of both fiction and nonfiction, a presenter and a collector, by the way, of vintage and antique costume. Uh, Lucy Adlington, we were talking about the establishment of this studio. What have you learned anecdotally about how this proceeded uh, in terms of here comes a customer, uh, we're going to design something, are you satisfied with the product? You know, these transactions between the incarcerated and their customers. It was so useful to be able to speak to the last surviving seamstress because I could ask those just really intimate personal questions that perhaps somebody wouldn't give in their show a video testimony. And so I said, well, you know, what did you do day to day? And she said the clients would come in, they'd flip through magazines. And in my own archive, I have magazines that I bought in in Poland that are German fashion magazines. And I can't help thinking, did the SS women flip through these very magazines looking for styles? And then Marta Fuchs, the head of the workshop, was a very talented cutter. She could transform any image into a gown. And each woman in the workshop had to produce two outfits, complete outfits a week or face repercussions. And what's really remarkable is that the the SS women would come into this room and they would barely treat the seamstresses as human beings. And I thought, well, what what did the dressmakers make of the SS? I know how I feel about them. I I wrote this book in a a fury, really, at, at at their degrading treatment of the prisoners. So I asked Mrs. Kohut, the last seamstress, tell me about the commandant's wife. What was Hedvig like? 
And, you know, she just said, eh, she'd had four children. Her figure wasn't so good. Uh. <laughs> and I just thought, oh, my goodness. And later she talked more about the bitterness she felt. But really, you know, they just, I suppose they just seemed like ordinary women. But they weren't. They were utterly complicit in the use of slave labor, in taking clothes from deportees to Auschwitz. Hedvig had her runners go off to the, the plunder warehouses and pick out the nicest things for her dressmakers to alter for her. So the dressmakers themselves, although they had to work very punishingly long hours, they had an immense sense of camaraderie. Many of them were from Slovakia. And they shared the same language. They shared some of them were, were best friends from back home. And so they had a lot of time to talk. And one of the dressmakers said, we were like a family united in joy and sorrow. Now, I know that you write fiction. And so uh, I know that you've applied your powers of trying to just reconstruct this imaginatively. Here you have a, a client coming for a dress rifling through the pages of a catalog, uh, finding, saying, p- putting her finger on saying, I want that, that item. And, and then the, the seamstress ends up making that item for the enemy. And uh, this is a seamstress who, coming into the camp, has been stripped of, of her own clothing. And I just am wondering, in your mind's eye, if you've kind of walked through that scenario, how would you not? I used as much of the the testimonies, the interviews, and my own context research to to try and get my head around that. Because when they were when they were interviewed, the the women said we knew exactly what was happening. They they'd seen the cues for the gas. They'd been through the selections for life and death at Auschwitz. They knew everything. They knew the conditions outside this this haven of a sewing room. And so I think one anecdote that really stuck in my mind was from one of the girls called Lulu, a very mischievous girl. And one time Hedvig was in the fitting room with Marta and Hedvig's little boy, Hans Jürgen, was playing with the dressmakers outside. It's just extraordinary, isn't it, to think this little boy is playing with the prisoners. And Lulu was just so upset and so angry at this hypocrisy and this the hell that they knew was going on beyond the salon walls. She leapt up with a tape measure and she put it round the boy's neck and she said, soon you're all going to hang, your mother, your father, all of you. And then she slipped the tape measure away and she didn't hurt the little boy. But the next day, Hedvig said to Marta, she said, what, Hans Jürgen doesn't want to come today. I don't understand what's gotten into him. And so really interesting just to see that moment recorded in a testimony of how the dressmakers felt about things. But they had no chance to do sabotage on the the women's clothing. They would have been caught. But they certainly did resist the Nazis in every other way possible. There were discoveries that some of these girls made about the fate of their own families. Yes, when they were sorting through plunder in the warehouses, one of the girls, Katka, she found coats belonging to her family. Eraina had already seen two of her sisters um, die in the camp, one from disease and one was gassed. She was too weak to survive selection. And Eraina was looking through, sorting through plunder for the Nazis, and she came across her, her third sister's coat. And she knew that her third sister, Frida, had been murdered. So in that sense, clothes are not frivolous, are they? You know, they held those mementos, they held the memories. And another girl, Katka, she found her own coat 
And she stole it from the plunder warehouse and thought, I'm going to carry on wearing this. So, really tragic, though, yeah, very emotional. So the, the plunder warehouse is the resource from which the materials were then taken for making new clothing. I, that, that's my understanding. Is that right? The clothing was taken from the plunder warehouses. It was also taken from Jewish businesses in occupied Poland, you know, shops that had been taken over, everything stolen. The very sewing machines they used had been taken from murdered Jews. There's a story about Marta, Marta Fuchs being shot. Would you walk us through that? I won't tell you the complete story because I'm hoping that you will read the book, of course, and discover. <laughs> but Marta was very strongly involved in the Auschwitz underground. And that's not something we hear about a lot, is it? But there was definitely, there were many resistance groups against the odds in Auschwitz. And Marta linked with an SS nurse who was very friendly to the prisoners. And so through these links, they were able to get extra food for prisoners who needed it most and medicines and information. So messages were smuggled out of the camp and they were and information was smuggled in so that people could hear the progress of the war. And one thing that prisoners were determined to do was to warn Jews in Hungary, who until 1944 had been relatively safe, to warn them that Auschwitz-Birkenau was prepping for mass murder, that the Jews would be deported from Hungary. And so two men were set to escape, to warn the world, and to tell the Allies, you have to do something about you have to stop the deportations. And Marta was set, if these two young men hadn't made it out, she was set to be the next person to go. Now, as it happened, uh, Freddie Wetzler and Rudy Verber made it out and very famously brought news of the, the mass murder in Auschwitz to the outside world. But Marta did make her own escape. It was actually from the death march from Auschwitz. She escaped with a couple of other seamstresses and they tried to make their way through occupied Poland. Unfortunately, they were shot. They were shot by members of the Wehrmacht. And Marta was shot in the back. But Marta was clever. And her backpack was full. And that is what saved her life. And she had the most extraordinary journey from occupied Poland back through Hungary to Bratislava and home. Is this after the conclusion of the war then? Well, she actually spends a great deal of time um, in hiding, not only from Germans seeking for Jews, but also from the Russian bombardment as the Russian allies move in closer. And like many survivors of the camps and of the ghettos, returning home is, is devastating because so many people have been murdered. The anti-Semitism is still strong in their hometowns. But for some of the dressmakers homecoming as well as the sorrow. It's a time of reunion. And there are some really, really moving stories of the young women being reunited with their friends and very rarely with relatives. And they start again. And Marta opens a new salon and she invites members of the Auschwitz dressmaking studio to come and work for her again after the war and start their lives again. That actually happens? Yes. Yeah, I've made nothing up in this book. It is all entirely true. And so Marta runs a salon in Prague called Salon Marta until eventually various forces collude and uh, she moves to, to be with her husband. Well, she's with her husband in Prague, but they move out of the city. Well, when you tell a story like this, 
you can talk about it kind of glibly with the word heroism, you know, and that doesn't cut it, does it? I do think of them as heroes. And I spend a lot of my time writing about what I think of as quiet heroism um, that, you know, you may think it all has to be about military con conquest, brave men with armaments. But I think these everyday acts of resistance and above all kindness, they are what kept people going as much as anything. And I think the stories of these dressmakers show just how powerful those warm human connections were in a place where the SS were doing everything they could to degrade and to destroy, to break up families, to set people against each other. So yes, to me, this is, this is heroism. And yes, they did sew clothes for during much of their time in Auschwitz. But every single stitch was an, an act of resistance because they were living and they were living as really decent human beings to each other. They kept their humanity. Would you leave us back in San Francisco with this elderly woman who's a survivor? And um, I'm just imagining you now thanking her for her words and trying to part ways because in the presence of somebody like that, in my experience, when I've had those kinds of encounters, I don't want, I don't exactly want it to end. We kept in touch via Skype. And I, I think it's, it was such a profound experience that it stays with me anyway, and being able to write about it and just the, the warmth of her welcome and feeding strudel. But I'm also, I still have just this echoey after image in my mind of a very neat woman, a very small woman in old age, just patiently rubbing the seams of her trousers as one day she just told me name after name of friends of hers from school who'd been killed. And she just spoke of the importance of sharing these stories and remembering all the people who'd been murdered. And as she sat there, she had a photograph of her family, of whom her and her sister were the only survivors. And that was what she kept looking at. So for her, it wasn't about the clothes. It wasn't about the SS. She just, she still had that love. She still carried that love. And so I hope I've conveyed something of, of her sense of loss and love in the book. The book is titled The Dressmakers of Auschwitz, The True Story of the Women Who Sewed to Survive. Lucy Adlington, thank you so much for sharing with us. Thank you, Marcus. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. I hope you enjoyed that treat from our archives. If you ever want to explore other great episodes from our archives, just check us out on our webpage. It's byuradio.org slash Constant Wonder. Our next brand new installment of the Constant Wonder podcast will come next Wednesday when we're going to acquaint you with a, well, a, a warm-hearted creative Hollywood producer type who discovered a family connection to a crumbling English manor house and he decided he needed help save it from ruin. With tongue-in-cheek, he calls it Downton Shabby. Hopwood Dupree tells his amazing, life-changing story next week in an all-new Constant Wonder.